Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. This is an historic weekend in motorsports with the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500. And believe me, this has been on the calendars of executives at the 500 for years. This weekend has been circled. A lot of activities going along with it. And we are going to dig into the 500. We're going to visit with Lou Friedman, who is a a very accomplished sports writer. He's worked with the Chicago Tribune, the Philadelphia Inquirer, among others. He's written a wonderful book, The Indianapolis 500, A Century of High-Speed Racing. This book digs into all of the things that we now think of as the glorious traditions of this race and how they've made the race safer and more interesting and more immersive and enjoyable for fans. Lou, you picked a heck of a topic for a book. This is a great one. Uh, certainly there is a need for it. I think you have a real winner on your hands right here. Well, thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. It was something I was thinking of for a number of years. As you mentioned, the raceway officials have been anticipating this date for quite some time. This is part of a lengthy several-year celebration, really. You know, they had a series of anniversaries with the track being built, this the first race, then now the hundredth race. And and so they've kind of enjoyed uh, multiple anniversaries here. Ray Haroon won the first race. The 50th race was won by A.J. Foyt. And soon after that, those two drivers appeared together on the television show What's My Line as mystery guests. And they ran it a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, oh, boy, I wish I had my recorder going on that. Lou, that was a lot of fun. That was historic. And that's how this race is going to be. Absolutely. Although I would have thought that they would never have guessed Ray Haroon under What's My Line, but might have got A.J. Foyt. It was so historic. And to hear how the first race actually was, this track, this magnificent track, uh, which is a one-of-a-kind experience to go in it. Take us inside uh, the size of it, the scope of it. There is nothing else like it in the world, is there? That is absolutely right on the money. There is nothing like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It was built for size, and it is the biggest sporting venue in the entire world. I mean, the unofficial capacity is 400,000 people. 
which is clearly more than any other sporting event. Started out as 328 acres of farmland, and believe it or not, back in 100 years ago, when land and everything was cheaper, it only cost $250,000 to build. <laughs> I can't imagine what it would be like now and what the price tag would be when you're building billion-dollar football stadiums in the New York area. Yeah. The Indianapolis 500 is the showcase of an incredible building and structure, which is in its own marvel. It certainly would be one of the seven wonders of the sporting world if there was such a categorization. And, it, and the experience of seeing that building kind of begins before you actually go inside. As you kind of approach on a side street and it first becomes visible to you, the very first thought the driver or someone on foot would realizes just the incredible vast size. It looks like its own national park. <laughs> it's so huge. It covers block after block. It's something you almost gasp every time you see it. And if time passes where I do not see it, you know, a matter of six months or something like that, if I happen to be in the area, every time I do see it for the first time that day, I'm struck the same way. The incredible vastness and size of it dwarfs them all. For fans that are going into this track, and perhaps maybe they've been there 25, 30 years ago, but there are some fundamental differences today. Introduce us to how today's Indianapolis 500 compares with an older track of maybe 30 or 50 years ago. Well, you have to, if you go back to the beginning, you know, the nickname for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is the, the Brickyard. And that's because in the early going, they first put down some asphalt that didn't really work. So they replaced the surface. But over time, as the you know substances got faster, smoother, the bricks have been virtually all replaced. So the, the, it's almost a misnomer to call it the brickyard, but the nickname has stuck. But to see those bricks, any of the original bricks, it's only a couple foot wide segment that's left on the track. It, oh, I guess near the finish line is where it is, but there's yes. not much left of it. Um, so it's not quite the brickyard, but the brick leftovers these days. We're visiting with author and writer Lou Friedman about the Indianapolis 500. The 100th anniversary of the 500 is taking place this weekend, and a wonderful book which celebrates this, The Indianapolis 500, A Century of High-Speed Racing. Lou wrote that book, and we're happy to visit with him again. You know, Lou, you've spoken about the size and the scope of this place the first thing that takes a little getting used to is this is probably the only venue in the world where no person can see all of it. Uh, the track is too large. You actually watch a race by focusing on the part of it which you can see, and nobody can see all of it. That's a little different, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But they do come around so fast, you don't feel like you're missing anything. But, you know, when you think back of the history of the Indianapolis 500, and this is the 100th running, but not actually the 100th year, because during World War II and during World War I, the track shut down because of gasoline rationing. 
at those times. So there was no Indianapolis 500 during the war years of two war. And the track, especially after World War II, was in a sad state. People can't imagine this now with the current popularity and the way the track is beautifully kept. But it was left to go to seed. I mean, there was grass growing up through the asphalt in a few spots. It wasn't maintained for a period of several years. And it was almost shuttered at the end of World War II for good. In those early days, uh, the track, as I remember, and everything I've read about it, was actually built uh, in large part for uh, automobile testing, was it not? That was the the initial area, and this is, again, a foreign concept to most of our current sports fans. They only think of Detroit as the automotive capital of the world, but around 1910, 1911, the... uh, entrepreneurs behind building the speedway wanted to compete with Detroit to become the heart and soul of the automotive industry. They wanted to compete with Henry Ford and they built the raceway with the promise of and the idea of luring manufacturers to Indianapolis to test those vehicles. They wanted to be you know, the heart of the um, automobile passenger industry as opposed to the racing industry. They kind of got something they didn't expect because it never worked out that way. They became popular immediately in terms of racing crowds, but they never made a dent in the passenger vehicle area. There are a number of traditions associated with the track, which are played out each year. Of course, the national anthem is a stunning moment uh, taking place at the time of the year that it does, right at Memorial Day. And uh, the the jet flyover is legendary. Jim Neighbors, of course, for years uh, sang back home again in Indiana. Still missing him. Oh yes, you know. I mean, these are all things. They're all ingrained in our memory. Can you speak? to some of the great traditions of the track. Well, probably the funkiest one really is that the winner drinks milk. It's, it's just kind of odd when you think of it. It's not associated with any other sporting mm-hmm. event. Mm-hmm. And it began, oh, I think it was the 1930s was the first time when the winner had a, was very thirsty and the first thing that they handed him was a bottle of milk. And a very smart uh, public relations man from the dairy industry seized upon it and tried to make it more than a one-time occurrence, and then off and on for a few years, it uh, kind of eased in, and then it became an annual tradition, so you got to drink the milk. The initial green flag, as those cars explode past the finish line, the initial laps of the race where they're all fighting for positioning, and there's some fantastic racing going on, it's hard to imagine much of an adrenaline rush that could match that. Well, they, you know, coming off the starting line, these guys have been really practicing in Indianapolis for most of the month of May. They're ready to go. Their cars are ready to go. They're raring to go. On the other hand, you need some prudence on those first couple laps or you'll end up on the sidelines wrecked in one lap, wasting all of the month of May. So you've got to try to be sensible. But the one thing that we've learned, and you mentioned this very, I think, at the very upfront, this high-speed racing is much safer these days than it was 100 years ago. The first 70, 80, 90 years of life at Indianapolis could almost be a story of carnage. It's unfortunate how many people have lost their life there, whether they were drivers, mm-hmm. mechanics, uh, even photographers, spectators. And the greatest structural achievement and advancement for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was the introduction and installation over the last decade or more of the safer barrier. 
that softens the blow when a car hits the wall. Changes everything. The track itself, of course, is vastly improved uh, from a technology standpoint. It's probably one of the smoothest surfaces in the world. That is true, and I wonder how many fans really realize that if the rules governing the mechanics and the technology of the cars were not in place, how much faster they'd really be going if they were unchecked. I mean, they'd be going 250 miles an hour. Yeah. And then, of course, it wouldn't be as safe. Mm-hmm. So safety is an imposition there. I mean, 200 miles an hour, 210, I guess 220 is where we're seeing things at different times, practice, 230 maybe, but the cars would be have the capability to go much faster or can be built for that, except for the fact that people don't want them to. And it's not like somebody wouldn't mind seeing a car go 250 solo around the track, but the safety factor of how much the human being can react and his reflexes. And again, if you make the safety safer barrier obsolete, you haven't done anything. So it's kind of stuck in that zone where it used to be, when you think over time, it was the first car to go over 100 miles an hour going back to Ray Haroon's days and a little later. Yes. The first car to go 150, the first car to go 200. And people used to set records. Well, now they don't want you to set a record because just for a safety factor. Lou, there is no venue in the world which benefits more from new technology for the fan experience than the 500 does. And part of that, of course, is because you can't see the whole track, as we've already mentioned. Take us through the technology, the new display technology, which I understand has been received very, very well. What it's like for fans watching the race there. Well, it's more informational. You know, you can know what's going on without seeing every second of the race. I mean, they have those flashing uh, towers now with the, the places that change, you know, as they happen. You know, so you'll see car number 22 has moved to seventh. You know, and you can see that right before your very eyes. And while you're reading it, you know, the cars are only taking 30 seconds to get around the two and a half miles anyway. So you're really not in the dark very long, coupled with the... Uh, you know, so you can be looking at that and he and see on that informational stanchion that your guy has moved up a spot, and then next thing you know, he's coming around because it doesn't take. If you stand there and time the laps, it doesn't take that long when you're moving at that speed to go two and a half miles. <laughs> so they're only out of your sight for a certain amount of time. That's what kind of makes it palatable, so you don't feel like you're missing things. <laughs> Plus, I, uh, you can rent headsets that provide you access to, you know, reports, uh, the team conversations and things, so you can feel like you're in the, you're in the pits, almost. <laughs> Lou, thank you so much for the visit. Continued success, and uh, let's make this book a million seller. How about that? Oh, I'll, I'm all in favor. <laughs> Very good. Lou Friedman, our guest, who's written the wonderful book, The Indianapolis 500, A Century of High-Speed Racing.
The beautiful baseball park known as Globe Life Park in Arlington, Texas, the home of the Texas Rangers, it appears to be headed to the sidelines. The Arlington City Council has unanimously approved its support of a new $1 billion retractable roof baseball stadium that goes to the voters now in about six months. We're going to dig into this and find out what's going on. We've asked Neil DeMoss to join us. He's been with us several times, known with the Field of Schemes website. Neil, I know you're going to be sharpening your pencil quite a bit on this one. Uh, Is it fair to say, can we now say that perhaps Arlington, Texas, among all the cities in the country, is perhaps the most gung-ho on new stadium construction? They seem to love it down there. Ooh, you know, they might be in the running now, you know? <laughs> it's funny, one of the uh, the questions that was raised was uh, somebody asked me, hey, the, when I go fly down to, uh, to the Dallas airport, does my crazy car rental tax, is that going to help pay for this new stadium? And I looked it up, and it took me a while to figure out, no, the car rental tax at the airport pays for the um, basketball and hockey arena, it's a different car rental tax that pay, oh. is going to help pay for the Cowboys Stadium and now the new new Rangers Stadium, if that gets passed. It's just nuts. I mean, there's, you know, there's other cities that are in the running. I think Indianapolis certainly has to be always considered for mm-hmm. the amount of money that's thrown at the Colts and the Pacers over and over again. Mm-hmm. I am dumbfounded, I have to say. You know, I had heard them sort of throwing around the idea of, well, you know, the Rangers might move to Dallas if they don't get a new stadium. And I was kind of, you know, seriously, they just got a new stadium. And then all of a sudden, in a matter of four days, it went from announcement to passage in the city council. Let's think about the stadium itself here, Neil. By all accounts, this is considered to be certainly a very nice Major League Baseball park. What's driving the move toward a new park? Well, it doesn't have air conditioning. How can you possibly have a ballpark without air conditioning? This is honestly what the Rangers are arguing. Not enough people are coming to the games because it's Texas and it's hot in Texas. And I'm sure on top of it, you know, there's other things that newer, even newer stadiums, I should say, have that the current Ranger Stadium doesn't. You know, maybe they can figure out a way of squeezing in more food courts. Maybe they can figure out a way of uh, making more club areas that they can rent out to corporations. I think the answer is they're asking for a new one because they can, you know. And the deal here is it's a billion-dollar stadium, something around there. And the public's share starts at half a billion dollars and could be considerably higher when you count property tax break and land costs and things like that. You know, then the Rangers owners get to cover their share with naming rights and, you know, maybe they can try and squeeze in some seat licenses and other things like that. So if they wound up, it winds up costing them, I don't know, $200 million or something like that. That's still a significant amount of money, but that's, you know, not much more than a player to contract or two. And if they can get uh, a brand new stadium with air conditioning for that, then sure, they're going to go for it. Neil, I see a new trend in play here, and this is a continuing of what we saw with Atlanta 
In the Atlanta case, the announcement was made that they were going to leave Turner Field, which was by all accounts a fully functional baseball field. Now, the Braves did make an effort to try to diss Turner Field to the degree that they could, but most people, most observers feel that the stadium was still functional. I'd like your comments on that trend and where we've gone relative to the way things used to be when you had to make a case that the stadium that you're in no longer works. Well, there's an old term. uh, I mean, not that old, but it's, you know, 20, 30 years old at this point, which is economically obsolete. I remember this starting to be kicked around late 80s, early 90s, where team owners would say, sure, it's still a great place to watch a ball game. But it's economically obsolete, which means we're not making as much money from it as we could if we had a new one. Um, And I think that's what's going on here. If you go to my site, fieldofschemes.com, I just linked to the frequently asked questions document that the city of Arlington put up. And it's absolutely hilarious as a PR document. And one of my favorite things is ask the question, why do the Rangers need a new stadium? And the answer basically is, well, they wanted one. <laughs> and, I mean, yeah, it's pretty crazy that they don't have to argue any more than that. I think part of that has to do with the fact that they know that um, the Texas sports population and the Texas media um, have been fairly lenient on, uh, on stadium deals. You know, if this were going on in San Francisco, they would expect a much bigger fight. But also part of it is just this timeline, right? You know, if they were trying to build a campaign to convince the city council to do it, um, they would have to try and marshal their arguments and everything like that. But in Arlington, just like in Cobb County for the Braves, everything went on behind closed doors, right? Everything got decided before it became public. So they don't have to make an argument, you know? They're, they're, uh, I mean, the difference here, of course, they're going to have to do something because there's going to be a public vote. Um, but that can just be an ad campaign, you know, run lots of TV ads with uh, famous Rangers players coming and talking about how great this will be. Well, Neil, it is always a pleasure to visit and to talk about it. It seems like every few months we get one of these very interesting stadium I, stories. I know, I know I feel terrible every time I have a chance to talk to you. It's because something horrible is happening somewhere, but it's That's always right. a pleasure. Neil DeMoss of the Field of Schemes. Check it out, fieldofschemes.com. Neil does a lot of writing there. He's a good guy. It's a pleasure to visit with him. That's our program for this week, and we hope you enjoyed it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.